My name is Christopher Alam. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we come to your presence in the name of your son, Jesus, who died for us upon the cross, taking upon himself our sins, our shortcomings, our failures, and our diseases and infirmities. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died and rose again, and you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you said where two or three of us are gathered together in your name, we, you are there in the midst of them. So Lord, we acknowledge your presence in this place. I ask you that you would let your word go with power, that you would touch and heal those that are sick, that you would do miracles in this place. And Lord, for everything you do, we covenant to give you all the glory, honor, and praise because you alone are worthy in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Now, I want, to, I want to share with you from the Word of God. Let's go to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I'm going to read to you. This is one of the stories from the Bible. In Luke chapter 5. And I believe we'll read from verse number 17. Yeah. And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now this was a very interesting situation. It says Jesus, now Jesus was in the village of Capernaum. Capernaum is, the, is in the far north of Israel. It's north of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, uh, not very far from Capernaum, you know, if you keep on going north, you end up in Lebanon. That's really the northern extreme of, of Israel. So Jesus was in Capernaum, and it is said that he was in the house of Peter, the apostle Peter, and he was preaching there. And, but he had a very unusual attendance um, that day. Normally, when Jesus would teach, his audience would uh, be composed of you know, his disciples, of course, and people who were hungry for the word of God, people who would come to listen to him. But this day, other than his disciples, his audience consisted of, of Pharisees and doctors of the law. And you know, when these people gathered around Jesus, something no good is going to happen to you. You know, remember all Roberts used to say, something good is going to happen to you. When these guys showed up, you knew that something bad is going to happen. Because these people, they hated Jesus. The Pharisees hated Jesus. Now, there were different reasons for that. One thing could have been because Jesus, he broke their man-made laws. You know, they had, they had, of course, you had the law of God, but they had a lot of man-made religious laws that had nothing to do with the Bible. And they imposed those, those laws upon people and normally when they do that when religious leaders impose man-made laws upon people it's a way of controlling them that's what it comes down to it comes down to control and so Jesus he he broke their man-made laws then he he went against their traditions one of the things that really really ticked them off was that he used to spend his time with people who they call sinners Jesus was a friend of sinners. He used to eat and drink with sinners. And that really, really bothered them. Because they looked at certain 
people, a certain segment of society as people who were unclean, people who were sinners and they themselves would have nothing to do with them. But Jesus spent his time with them and he was a friend of sinners and they didn't like that. Another thing they didn't like was the fact that, and there I think professional jealousy comes in, was that Jesus healed the sick. And they could not heal the sick, so they were angry at him. So they couldn't stop him from saying, uh, you know, that it's wrong to heal the sick. So they were offended at him because there were certain days in which he could not heal the sick. And he healed the sick on those days anyway. So they were, <laughs> you know, I mean, they really hated the man. And they looked for every opportunity to find fault with him. So that they could tell everybody, this is not a man of God, because he said this. So that's why they used to show up when he was teaching. And they used to listen very intently, trying to find fault with him. So that is why these people were there. Now, the other interesting fact is that they had come from very far. It says that... uh, they had come from, from every town of Galilee. In other words, every town, every community in Galilee was represented in that room. There was at least one Pharisee from every single synagogue in that region. Then it says they came from Judea and they came from Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Judea were about four days journey away. In those days, people used to walk. They didn't have cars, so they used to walk. So if you wanted to go from Jerusalem to Capernaum, it used to take four days to walk up there. So these people had walked. Some of them, can you imagine the level of hatred that these people lived in? They walked four days. Each way. They're going to spend eight days walking. For what? To find fault with a man. Sometimes I think hatred is a greater motivating factor than love in many people's life. You know, they won't do much for love, but for hatred they will do anything. That is, that is the, in, the intensity of their hatred for Jesus. They walked four days each way. The thing that really amazes me the most was, in the, you know, in those days they didn't have telephones, they didn't have faxes, they didn't have emails. And I wonder how they had coordinated this. There must have been some way in which they had coordinated with one another and they had all made a decision that on such and such day we will all descend upon upon Capernaum because he's going to be in the house of Peter and he'll be teaching and we'll all show up there at the same time. Takes a lot of coordination even these days. But 2,000 years ago. But they did it. As I said, when people are driven by hatred... They can accomplish amazing feats. So they were all there. And you've got to remember that these were the same people who not long afterward had Jesus crucified. They were the ones who were shouting and screaming at the Romans, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted him dead. Now you can imagine, I'm telling you all this because I want you to imagine the, the atmosphere in that room. The place was full of people who hated Jesus. You can imagine the darkness in that room. 
You can imagine the, the murder in the eyes of those people as they glared at him, as he taught them, as he preached, the amount of hatred that was in the atmosphere. But here's the most amazing thing. It says here, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. That's the thing that amazes me the most. You know, listen, I like to preach to friendly crowds. You know, I'm normal. I like people to like me. You know, we all like people to like us. I preach to crowds where people hate you, uh, especially in Muslim countries, where they don't believe in Jesus, where they hate Christians, and, you know, you're preaching. And uh, I've, I've had people wear guns in, their meet in my meetings, waiting to shoot me. I've actually had people come armed wanting to shoot me. I've had that, and, and it's, a, it's a terrible thing. I mean, you, you, you don't want to get up there and preach. You want to cancel the service, you know, but because we, we, we like people to like us. I know you like people to like you, you know. I want people to like me. I mean, but Jesus was in that room preaching to this group of people, but here's the most amazing thing. God looked at that scene, he saw his son Jesus, and he saw these evil people who hated his son, wanted to kill him, and yet he sent his power, and it says, the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And this amazed me. So I began to think, why would God send his, send his power to heal such evil people? Why would God do that? Well, there's three reasons. The number one reason is that God is a good God. God loves everybody. The Bible says that uh, he loves the sinner and the saint. He loves the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God doesn't only love Christians. He loves everybody. Now there may be people you and I don't like, but God loves them anyway. You know, sometimes you just have to suck it up and accept that, okay, God loves this person. That's the way it is. God loves everybody. God loved those Pharisees. That's sometimes hard for people to understand because, uh, you know, I, I, have, I have people say to me, why doesn't God destroy all the evil people? I said, because first reason, God is not like us. He doesn't go around destroying evil people. Secondly, if he did, he would probably begin with you and me. Because the Bible says that, all, that there is none righteous, not one, and all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. I might think I'm better than you, but in the eyes of God, we are all the same. There's not one person who is without sin. Nobody can say that, well, you know, all these people are bad, I'm a good guy. Good and bad is relative. You know, I was in prison many years ago. I didn't do anything. I, got, I, was, I was preaching the gospel in a Muslim country. And so they actually arrested me and put me in prison. They wanted to kill me. And I'll never forget. Prison is, an, is, 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 a, is, a, is a, I mean, it's a totally different place. Because the people you see in prison are not the people you run into in everyday life. Okay? Now, we were not allowed to have razors and stuff like that, anything sharp, and we were not all allowed to have belt for our trousers because they were afraid they could be used as weapons. So, to get a shave, we had a prison barber. He used to come once a week, give us shaves and haircut. 
So I remember this prison barber. He came to our, you know, the air, our cell block. And I sat down in the barber's chair, and he put the lather on my face. And they, he, he had one of those, you know, they, they call them cutthroat razors. My, my father used to have one. They have a leather thing called a strop, you know, horrible-looking thing. So he was, he was actually shaving me, and his, his razor was somewhere around here. So I, I, I was just trying to make small talk with him. I said, so why are you here? And he says, uh, well, you know, I killed two people. And... <laughs> And I said, sure, Rabbi, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, deliver me from this man. You know, and he was, he was, and, and, and then he was saying, but you see, you see, he said, I'm not a bad person. That's what he said. He actually said that. I'm not a bad person because, you know, I have a good reason for killing those two people. One was my wife. And the other was her mother. That's what he said. Then he began to tell me all the things his wife had done and all the things his mother-in-law had done and that he was actually a good person, but he was, he was a victim. You know, he was the victim. They were not the victims. He was the victim because they pushed him to kill them. And then he said, but you know, I'm in the condemned row. He was hanged soon after. And he says... There's some other people there who are really, really bad, and I'm careful. I can't even sleep at night. So he was talking about them being bad. So I realized he's a man. He has killed two people. He thinks he's good. Anybody who has killed more than two people is bad in his eyes. Those who have killed less than the number he has killed are good people. They are the saints. So when you talk about good and bad, it's all relative. We normally draw a line, and we are that line. I am good. Those who are better than me are good. Everybody else is bad. So why doesn't God destroy the bad people? But the Bible says, here's the problem. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not one. That's just the way it is. So the thing is that God loves people. He loves, he loves the good he loves the evil. He loves, he, I mean, he loves everybody. You can make a list of people's sins and you can make uh, a, a list of the people who commit those sins and God loves all of them. Amen? Yeah. You know, God loves Muslims. He loves Jews. He loves Israelis. He loves Palestinians. He, he, loves, he loves everybody. He loves criminals. He loves good people. He loves bad people. He loves homosexuals. He loves straight people. He loves everybody. He doesn't have anything against anybody because he sent his son to die for all mankind. So that was the first reason the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Because God loved them. The number two reason why the power of the Lord was present there was because Jesus was preaching the word of God. There is power in the word of God. The psalmist says, he sent forth his word and he healed them. Whenever Jesus spoke the word of God, there were, there were always miracles in the house. There are always miracles when the word of God is preached and people believe the word of God. The third reason... The power of the Lord was present to heal the sick was because Jesus was there. 
There is something about the presence of Jesus. Wherever he would show up, there would be miracles. Because Jesus Christ is a life changer. And there's different kinds of miracles. There's miracles that happen in people's hearts, in people's minds. There's miracles that happen in people's bodies. Whenever Jesus showed up any place, there were always miracles. We read that in the gospel. Everywhere he went, there were miracles. Jesus is a miracle-working God. But the interesting thing is that in spite of these three factors, in spite of the love of God, in spite of the word of God, in spite of the presence of Jesus, none of these Pharisees actually got healed. They knew the Torah, they knew the Bible, they knew the scriptures, they knew all that, but none of them got healed. You know why? Firstly, because their hearts were hardened. Secondly, they were unwilling to change. God loves us, but if our hearts are so hardened that we are unwilling to change, I'm sorry, there's nothing he can do for us. Because there's one thing God will never take away from man, and that is man's sovereign uh, ability to choose his own destiny. So sad. Can you imagine sitting in the same room as Jesus Christ himself, and going away unchanged. I mean, it's totally mind-boggling. Sitting in the same room as Jesus Christ himself and going away unchanged just because their hearts were hardened. Sin can harden our hearts. Cynicism sets in. We can become so hard that even the love of God cannot touch us. And that's a terrible place to be in when our hearts, we cannot let our hearts even have the least bit of tenderness so that the love of God can break through. That's the worst place to be in. None of them were changed. But there was one man who was healed that day. And I want to tell you his story. It says here, in verse number 18, And behold, men brought in a, man, in, in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy. The man was paralyzed. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in, because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch unto the midst before Jesus. You know, when I saw that first, I thought, I mean, how is this possible? You take somebody on the rooftop of a house and then you kind of, you know, make a hole in the roof and let the man through. But I understood when I was in Israel, I went to Capernaum, went to this village. And our guide, he showed us. And he was not a Christian guy. And because, you know, he, he had studied archaeology, so yes, he, he explained everything from that perspective. He, we looked at the houses and he actually showed us the actual house where this story took place. It was right close to the synagogue. So he said, you see, he said, you see, every house has a, stair, has a staircase going up to the roof on the outside wall. I said, yeah. I said, he said, do you know why it is? I said, no. Then he said, well, it's because every afternoon, early afternoon, a strong wind would blow from the Sea of Galilee. And in those days, the roofs of those houses were quite flimsy. They were not constructed as today. And the roofs would blow the straw off the... Uh, I mean, the wind would blow the straw off the roof. So what they would do, the, the owner of the house would kind of climb up 
to the roof and just kind of rearrange the straw and make everything right again. They did that every day. That's why they had the staircase. So then he came to the scripture. He says, that's what they did. He says, you know, it wasn't a difficult thing because the roofs were constructed in such a way. You know, they, they had some wood, then they had some straw, then they had some tiles, then they had some straw again after that. So he says, so they just, it was easy for them to climb up and remove the straw and remove the tiles, the shingles, and let the man through. And that's what they did. But this is an extreme step. Still, it's an extreme step. Even if it is easy to make a hole in someone's roof, you don't want to do it to somebody else's roof. <laughs> Especially if it is the house of Peter, as they say it was. Because Peter was a short-tempered man. So Peter is inside the house with Jesus as Jesus is teaching and then Peter hears there's some footsteps on his roof and he says, Jesus, there's some people on my roof and Jesus says, take it easy, Peter, it's okay, I've got it under control. And soon the sun shines through. <laughs> and Peter said, Lord, they're making a hole in my roof, I don't know what they're up to. Jesus said, take it easy. So now the hole is getting bigger and bigger and Peter can't listen to Jesus anymore, he's more concerned about his roof. <laughs> now the roof is like Six feet long, four, three, four feet wide, and suddenly a bed appears. Now he's really concerned. He thinks people are moving in there with their furniture. <laughs> it was the four friends. These four friends had brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus because they had heard that Jesus could heal the sick. And so they tied four ropes to the four ends of the cot in which he lay. And the Lord, that cot. So everybody sees this bed coming down. It's like science fiction, you know, it's very surreal. And so this bed comes down and soon the bed rests on the floor in front of Jesus. And everybody sees there's a paralyzed man on the bed. And it's interesting because now everybody is watching to see what Jesus is going to do. Obviously, the man is paralyzed, and he is going to do something about it. But it's interesting, because Jesus looks at the man, and the next thing he does, Jesus looks up. He looks up, and he sees these four faces in the four corners of that hole in the roof. And what does he see? They're all smiling. You know, Jesus can see the excitement in their faces and, you know, those four corners, the four, you know, of that hole, they're looking down and the Bible tells us what Jesus saw in those faces. It says when Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus sees our faith, he always responds to faith. Jesus always responds to faith. So the Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he turned to the paralyzed man. Now everybody's wondering, what is he going to do? Is he going to lay his hands upon him? Or is he, what is he going to do? But what Jesus did shocked everybody. Because Jesus looked at the man and said what nobody had expected him to say. He said, my sons, your sins are forgiven. That's what he said. You know, this shocked everybody. I mean, the four friends were shocked. And they said, 
Now wait a minute, there's a misunderstanding here. We took our friend up on the roof. We made a hole in Peter's roof. We lowered our friend through the roof. For what? To have his sins forgiven? The Pharisees were shocked because they said, and so when the Bible says, who does he think he is? How can he forgive sins? What right does he have to forgive sins? You know what shocked me the most was, I began to think, this man must have been an exceptionally evil person. He must have done something really bad. So that Jesus saw his need for forgiveness as being a greater need than his need for healing. You know, that's what I thought. I said, I wonder what this man had done. So I began to look for him through the other Gospels to see if I could find him anywhere, but I couldn't find him anywhere. And then it suddenly dawned on me, this man, I mean, he couldn't have done anything exceptionally wrong because he's paralyzed. I mean, what sins can a paralyzed person commit? The list is very small. Murder is out. Armed robbery is out. Burglary is out. You know, I mean, the list, you can imagine a person who cannot even go from point A to point B, but has to be carried around by his friends on a bed. I mean, what sins can he commit? And then I suddenly realize what his sin was. You see, sin, hear me out. Sin is not what you do, but sin is who a person is. Sin means that if you're walking on this earth and you don't have a relationship with God, that is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is not committing an evil act. People commit evil acts as a result of them not being in fellowship with God. Because we are created to know God, to have fellowship with God. When a person doesn't have that fellowship, then a lot of things follow as a consequence. But sin, the Greek word for sin, actually means when an archer shoots an arrow and the arrow misses the target, that's called sin. It's missing the mark. And so you can imagine, you know, I mean, physical healing is a wonderful thing. I've seen people physically heal. But you know, there's something about healing. Healing only lasts in this lifetime. Right? God heals you. You are healed. But if your relationship with God is not repaired, what will happen after you die? There's a heaven and a hell. That's what the Bible says. To be healed from a disease doesn't mean that a person's soul is saved. Because healing doesn't last until eternity. It only lasts until your grave, until the point you die. But Jesus loved this man so much. He read the condition of the man's heart. So he offered him the greatest gift of all. I remember the day I met Jesus. When Jesus touched me, I was 21 years old. I was a Muslim, never heard of Jesus, never seen a Bible in my life, never been to church, never met a Christian. I didn't know anything. I was a combat veteran. I was suicidal. I was messed up. But I remember the day when Jesus came into my heart and he changed my life. And I can say that has been the greatest 
and the most wonderful single experience in my life. Because I felt clean on the inside. I felt like I had been washed clean. My conscience had been washed clean. God had given me a new heart. I felt like a huge rock, like a burden I'd carried all my life had been lifted off. That's how I felt. And I felt like the first 21 years of my life, my whole life was in a gray scale and now everything was in color. That's how I felt. That's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Meeting Jesus. And so Jesus, that's, that's what he gave to him. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, after he did that, now he's going to heal, the, heal him. He's going to heal this sick man. How did Jesus heal this paralyzed man? It's interesting. He didn't touch him. He didn't pray for him. He didn't anoint him with oil. He didn't lay hands on him. But Jesus said three impossible things. He said to the man, my son, arise, take up your bed, and go home. Now, you know, it's interesting because I, by, by the grace of God, I'm a perfectly healthy person. If I was to be laying in a bed and Jesus would come to me and say, Christopher Alam, arise, I would rise up. He would say, take up your bed. I'd pick up my bed. He said, go home. I would go home. That, I mean, wouldn't be a problem for me. But to say that to a paralyzed person, arise, take up your bed, and go home. But the interesting thing is that when Jesus said those words, the man arose, he took up his bed, and he, walked, and he actually walked home. That's the miracle. How did that happen? You see, when God speaks his word, and man obeys the word, the impossible becomes possible. Because with God, nothing is impossible. All things are possible for them that believe. He got up and walked. And those Pharisees were still say, sitting there. They were watching all this. None of them were healed. You know what they said? Their, their reaction was, we have seen strange things today. <laughs> That's what they actually said. We have seen strange things today. So when Jesus speaks his word, impossible things become possible. Now I want to fast forward 2,000 years and I want to finish with a story. This was 2,000 years ago. Now, many years ago, I was fresh out of Bible school and I had an invitation to go and preach in Pakistan. So I told the pastors there, I said, Arrange the meeting in, a, in the open air in a Muslim area. I want the Muslims to come. So they organized the campaign in a Muslim area, and we had thousands of Muslims who came out. So one night as I'm preaching, while I'm preaching, there was an aisle down the middle. It was in a park. There was an aisle down the middle. And in Muslim countries, the men sit on one side, the women sit on the other side. They don't mix. You know, they have their own sections. So suddenly, while I'm preaching... I can, I can see some people from the back kind of moving towards the front. And the ushers, we had ushers. The ushers did nothing to stop them. And I saw, what I saw, well, first of all, there, was, there were two men who were carrying a crippled man. This man couldn't walk. They were actually carrying, they, were, they had propped him up and they were carrying him. 
And they walked all the way to the front. While I'm preaching, I'm on the platform, so they carried him all the way to the front. Behind them was a lady who I assume was the wife of the crippled man. She was carrying like a mattress. It was a thin mattress. It was all rolled up. And then behind them was someone with a pillow and a blanket, and there, was, there were a dozen or so relatives. So while I'm watching, by this time I stopped preaching because everyone was watching these people. There was no point preaching, so I was also watching them. I was trying to see what are they going to do. So they unrolled the mattress. Then the, the lady fluffed up the pillow, put it in one end, and then they laid the paralyzed man on with his head on the pillow, laid him down, and covered him with a blanket, and everybody sat in a semicircle, and they all looked at me, staring at me. And the, the paralyzed man is staring at me. And now the crowd also is looking at him, pointing to me, and pointing to the man, and I'm thinking, these Muslims are thinking, now he has been talking about Jesus, now he has the opportunity to prove what his Jesus can do. Panic hit me. I said, this man must have been sent by the devil. Because if it was God, God would send someone with a headache or something. You know, I mean, God, if it was God, he would have sent someone with a headache because I can handle that. I can handle, I'm good at headaches and backaches. That's what, that was my expertise. People with headaches and backaches and uh, sinuses. I was good at sinuses, you know. Sinuses and, you know, things like that. I was good at that. But I never prayed for a paralyzed man. I mean, this was, I didn't know what to do. Panic struck me. And I suddenly realized that something has to happen now. So I can do two things. I can just keep on preaching like a filibuster, you know, like the politicians. I can go on late unto the night until everybody just leaves, you know. I can do that. But I'm not a politician. I'll run out of things to say. And the other alternative is that God has to do something. So I thought, I don't know what to do. Nobody else here seems to know what to do. These Muslims are watching me. They're watching this old man. So I'm really desperate. Something has to happen. So I need to hear from God. I need to pray and hear from God. So all the pastors were sitting, you know, at the back. They were, they were, they were sitting on chairs. And I, my eyes fell on one pastor. He had opened the service the night before. And he had prayed a long prayer, you know. He had been given the opportunity to pray. I mean, they gave him the microphone. He prayed for 45 minutes. He, and when he prayed, he traveled all around the world in his prayer. He prayed for every country, naming by, countries by name, mentioning those countries and the people. You know, I, I thought, if I give him the microphone now, I have about 45 minutes, you know. And during those 45 minutes, I'll figure out what to do. So I said, Pastor, please take the microphone. Please pray a prayer. Right now, I feel that you should pray. I really feel strongly that God wants you to pray. So he, he got up, you know, he was very proud that I had chosen him. So he picked up the microphone and he said, Dear Lord, we bless the people of India. I said, okay, he has taken off. He's on his journey. So it's going to take some time. So he's now praying for the people of India. And I'm walking behind him and I'm doing business with God. I said, God, you know, here's a man here. And I don't even have to tell you. You can see he's there. And, 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 and something has to happen. I mean, 
you know, either he dies or, 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 or he walks, but it's better that he walks because all these Muslims are watching. Three nights I've been here, I've been telling everybody how great, how wonderful you are, what Jesus can do, and now they bring this crippled man. I was not expecting this. And now he's here, you have to do something. Tell me what to do. And you know what God said? He said absolutely nothing. So now I'm biting my nails. I go on. I'm praying. I'm very, very desperate. I'm sweating now. I go on for about 10, 15 minutes. And then I begin to make a deal with God. I said, God, okay, let, let's make a deal. I said, you just heal this guy, okay? Uh, and I promise you, I'll never go to these Muslim countries again. <laughs> I'll, I'll never step out on a limb again and tell everybody how wonderful you are. I'll keep my mouth shut. And I'll stay in Sweden because I lived in Sweden. And I'll stick with backaches and, and headaches and sinuses. And, and, you know, I'm sorry I put you on the spot. And I will never do, you know. So I'm doing this, and I'm, I'm doing business with God. And then suddenly after about 15 minutes, I hear an audible voice right behind me. I actually hear a man's voice. And the voice says, do what the master did. And I looked behind me, and it was nobody. So I knew it was God speaking to me. Do what the master did. So I'm thinking, what did the master do? He was never in Pakistan. I don't remember in the Bible that Jesus was ever in Pakistan. So I thought, what, what do I do? And then I suddenly remembered the story I'm telling you about the boy who was lowered through the roof. And it all dawned, it came to me, you know, it all became very clear to me. And what God was telling me, just do, just say what Jesus said. That's what God said to me. Say what Jesus said. Because he said two things. He said, firstly, you have to remember that the word of God is as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. That's the first thing. The number two thing, he says, the word of God in your mouth is as powerful as it was when it came out of the mouth of God. If you just speak the words of Jesus, the same thing will happen was, uh, as when Jesus spoke the word. So I suddenly knew what to do. But now, you've got to understand, my heart is thumping hard. Because I know what I have to do, but my mind says no. So I kind of wrestled with this, but then I knew I have to do this because I knew God had spoken to me. So I went to the pastor. By this time, he's in Japan or someplace, you know. So I said, Pastor, thank you, thank you. And he was unwilling to let go of the mic. I said, Pastor, please, please sit down. You can continue later. So I took the microphone, and then I remember holding the microphone. I stood at the edge of the platform, and I looked down at the man. And I knew that I had to say to him, in the name of Jesus, rise up, take up your bed, and go home. I knew that's all I had to say, and that he would rise up. But there was a big disconnect between my heart and my head. You know, my mind wouldn't believe it, but I knew that's what I had to do. So I said, okay, I'm going to obey God. I'm just going out on a limb. I will do this just because God says so, not because I feel anything. I don't feel anything. I, you know, I'm just going to do what God says. So then I thought, which translation of the Bible do I use? You have the King James, you have the New American Standard Version, you have the Living Bible, uh, because I want to get it right. Then I said, I'm going to stay with the King James, because all the big American preachers use King James. 
So I said, I'm going to use the King James Bible. So I remember I closed my eyes. I closed my eyes and then I was going to say it. I opened my eyes because I thought I got to cover my bases. So I said to the man, I said, listen, I'm going to tell you to do something right now. And you better do what I tell you to do. Because if you don't do it, you're going to die right here. And nobody's going to help you until Jesus returns. And his, his eyes bugged like this. I said, do you want to die? I said, okay, you don't want to die. You do what I tell you to do, okay? I'm the man of God here. He went up. Then I said to his relatives, make sure he does what I tell him to do, okay? Because he's going to die. And they all looked at me frightened. I said, okay. So I closed my eyes. And I said, in the name of Jesus, my heart is beating. And I said, rise up. And I heard a big shout go up from the crowd. And I slowly opened one eye. <laughs> and I see this man standing. Every, I mean, not only him, but the whole crowd was standing. Because I said, rise up. They thought, you know, they, they all stood up and... Everybody was shocked because they had seen the way this man had been carried in. But you know who was the person most shocked? It was me. <laughs> I closed my eyes again. I said, I better do it as the Bible says. I said, take up your bed. And next time I opened my eyes, he's, he's got his pillow and his blanket and his mattress and he's standing there like a soldier waiting for an order. <laughs> and then I thought, we better hurry this up. Before the, the power runs out, you know. <laughs> so instead of saying, go home, as Jesus said, I said, run, man, run, run home. <laughs> and the man, he took off like a rabbit. I have never seen a man paralyzed, get up and run so fast. He was running. I mean, he ran at top speed. I saw him disappear way through the trees. And there were thousands of people. I don't know how many thousand were there, but they all behind began to run after him. They were all running after him. And they were all shouting, all these Muslims, Jesus is alive! Jesus is alive! Jesus is alive! Jesus is alive. The next day, I came to the meeting. I saw a whole bunch of mullahs and Muslim clerics. There's a car park was about 100 yards out. And I could see them with their long beards, you know, standing there. I thought they were waiting to lynch me. <laughs> and I said to the driver, let's go back to the hotel. <laughs> then the pastor who was with me, he said, no, no, let's, let's see what they want. I said, yeah, I'm the one, you know. <laughs> and so we got out of this car. And these Muslim clerics came and they kissed me on both cheeks. They put flower garlands around my neck and they hugged me. They knew this man and they understood what God had done. You know, I learned one thing. I learned one thing that Jesus truly is the same yesterday, today and forever. That anybody who reaches out to touch him can experience something wonderful from him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That man who was healed, I never even bothered to ask 
whether he was a Muslim or a Christian or he was an atheist, an agnostic, I, to this day, I don't know. All I know is that the people in that area knew him. And all I know is that Jesus Christ loved that man and healed him and raised him up. With God, nothing is impossible. And all things are possible when we believe. But you know, the most important thing, I go back to this again and again, the greatest miracle that I have experienced was when Jesus changed my life. That is the greatest thing I've ever experienced in my life. And I became a new person. And the Bible says if anybody's in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. All things have become new. When Jesus died upon the cross, the Bible tells us that he bore upon himself all of our sins and our diseases, our weaknesses, our shortcomings. He took our place. He became like us so that we can be like him. Can you imagine? He took our place so that we can become sons and daughters of the Most High God. He came to make us clean. He came to give us a new life. Let's bow our heads together, whoever you are. Because I don't know you, but the Lord knows you and he knows your heart. And while your heads are bowed, I just want to ask you one question. And that's between you and God. As I said, I cannot read your heart, but God knows. My question is, if you were to die, where are you going to spend eternity? Have you received forgiveness of sin? Do you have peace with God in your heart? These are the important things. Now most of you will say, Brother Christopher, I have peace in my heart. I know my sins are forgiven. I know that God has done a work in my life and that is a wonderful thing. But if there's anyone here, you say, Brother Christopher, I need my sins to be forgiven. I want to turn my life over to Jesus. I want him to do his work in my life. I need my sins forgiven. If that is the condition of your soul, then I really, really want to pray with you. And if that's the condition of your soul, if you could just show me a hand, just indicate to me by show me a, showing me a hand so I know who you are, I want to pray with you. I just want to make sure. Maybe everybody here has peace with God and that's wonderful. But as I said, since I don't know you, if there's even one person here and you need to get right with God, this is your opportunity. Is there anybody, you say, Brother Christopher, I need to get right with God. Just raise your hand high enough for me to see it because I want to pray with you. God bless you, madam. Anybody else? Anybody else? Need to get right with God. Okay, let's all stand to our feet. Madam, could you come and join me right here? Please come and stand with me. Nothing to be ashamed of. You put your hand up, you would come and stand with me. Here, madam, can I have somebody to pray with her? Madam, could you pray with her, please? Praise God. Let's lift up our hands to God. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. I thank you, Lord, that you're good and your mercies endures forever. 
I thank you, Lord Jesus. I welcome you to this place. I ask you to do your work in our lives this evening. I ask you to heal those that are sick. Bring peace to our minds, fill our hearts with faith. Jesus, above all, be glorified in all things in our lives. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your mercies in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus.